All right, let's open our Bibles to chapter 32. Our goal tonight is 32 through 35, and the book of Isaiah is divided into three major sections, and the first section is chapter 1 through chapter 35. These chapters deal with prophecies of condemnation, not only to Israel in the north, but Judah in the south. And in chapters 28 through 33, we're going to see six what we call woe judgments. In chapter 34, I think, is the last one. So in chapters 28 to 33, we have these six woes on Israel and Judah, uh, four specific sins, and Isaiah's prophetic commendation closes with a general picture of international devastation called the tribulation that will then go into the millennial reign. And he's been very repetitive as we've been going over this the last couple of weeks. But as we get to chapter 35, it really is the end. And we're going to switch gears and get into a, a brief section between 36 and 40, which is going to deal with King Hezekiah his sickness, his prayer request to be healed, that was answered. Probably wasn't a very good idea when we read the outcome of that. And then the last section of the book of Isaiah is chapter 40, all the way to 66. And here, a lot, of course, is talked about the Messiah, especially Isaiah 53. A lot of talk about the kingdom age. So I like to say that the book of Revelation is divided into three divisions. That's Revelation one nineteen. The Lord tells John, write the things you've seen, the things that are, and the things that are going to be. And there you have the whole division of the book. If I would say that about the book of Isaiah, I'd say it's three divisions. Prophecies of condemnation, 1 through 35. And then personal story of a good king whose name was Hezekiah, 36 to 40. And we're just deal with him and the consequences of his prayer request being answered. And then the final section would be chapters 40 to 66, messianic prophecies and uh, prophecies of a future hope concerning the kingdom. But we're picking it up tonight. I'm going to have you turn to chapter 32. Chapter 32 is my subtitle is Behold the Coming King. Uh, This chapter is sort of a bright note between the fifth and the sixth woes. We'll be talking more about the woe judgments on Sunday, but not just here. Um, We have woe judgments in Isaiah. We have the Lord Jesus pronouncing woe judgments on the religious hierarchy in Matthew 23. And then we have woe judgments in the book of Revelation. And uh, we'll be dealing with that on a more in-depth study on Sunday. But here in chapter 32, it's sort of a ray of light for God's people in this particular day. It's been some time since this person of the king has been before us, but we find him introduced again at this point. There could be no millennium or blessing to this earth without him. So chapter 32 is a prophecy concerning uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then you're going to notice right away that it's going to bounce back to a local king uh, whose name is Sennacherib. He's the king of Assyria. And one of the things that I've asked to be sensitive to as we teach through the Bible, that it's going to jump. And just from one verse to the next, it's local, and then it's jumping into the future. So verse 1 of chapter 32, I'm going to read the first four verses. This is where we have the first natural break. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, 
and princes will rule justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a covering from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadows of a great rock in a weary land. And the eyes of those who see will not be dimmed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. And also the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The king, of course, who is to reign is none other than our Lord Jesus, who I've been repeating often when the disciples asked him, how should we pray? It's really not the Lord's prayer, it's really the disciples' prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, is the first thing they pray for. So the king, who's going to reign in that kingdom, is none other in verse 1 than the Lord Jesus Christ. The world has never had a kingdom like this. Daniel lays out all the world empires. He leaves out Egypt and Assyria only because he's living during the time of the Babylonian kingdom. But he lays out every kingdom that has ever had a world-dominating rule. A Babylon, Medo-Persian, Grecian, Roman. We haven't had a world government since Rome. The Bible says there's one coming. One of my concerns as a pastor in the church of the last days is the ecumenical movement towards Rome. It seems like people forgot all about the Reformation, that people were willing to be burned at the stake over doctrinal issues, where today it seems to be an non-issue and the attitude is more of, why can't we all just get along, be what Jesus prayed for, that we would be one. Well, that's a great scripture to quote, but it's sort of taking it out of context because the rest of the New Testament is Paul's defense and defending and trying to keep heresy out of the church. And it didn't take long. Uh, When you read the first hundred years, we have the doctrines that he warned about to John. This would have been 96 AD. And already in the first hundred years, we had problems of false doctrine creeping in. And um, after we go through these first four verses here, it's sort of sprinkled in here and there. We're at the end of the, end of the tunnel, so to speak. The Bible clearly says in the last days, perilous times are going to come, and they're coming. And I can't dance around that. But through it all, the Lord has his light at the end of the tunnel, and it's going to be the kingdom age, where the Lord will reign in his kingdom. And then in 5 through 7, we have... The King James says the vile person, the New King James says the foolish person, will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishly, and his heart will work iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also, the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. Now, in these verses here, vile person is actually another word for liberal. And that day, a vile person will no longer be called liberal because he will be seen for what he really is. When the kingdom comes, a spade will be called a spade. He'll, uh, If he's a villain and his heart will work iniquity, Everything in that future day will be seen in its true colors. Uh, There will be no false values. Every man will be seen for what he is. There will be no putting on a front or assuming things that are not. And the mark of hypocrisy will be removed. This, of course, applies to everyone, not only to Christians, 
The biggest hypocrites are actually not in a church. They are those who pretend to be something that they're not. And in that day, those things will be exposed during the Lord's kingdom reign. Verse 8, in contrast, but a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he will stand. In verses 9 through 15, it specifically is targeting out uh, sort of um, the attitude of the women in the latter days. And it says, verse 9, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a year and some days you will be troubled. Your complacent woman, uh, for the vintage will fail, the gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourself, make yourself bare, and gird sackcloth at your waist. People shall mourn upon their breast for the pleasant field, for the fruitful vine. And on the land of my people will come up thorns and briars, yes, all of the happy homes in the joyous city, because the palace, palaces will be forsaken, the bustling cities will be deserted, the forts and towers will become liars forever a joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. Okay, that's a natural break right there. God says that in the days prior, not only to the tribulation, we got two things going on here. Remember that Assyria is about to come in and take out the ten northern tribes. Evidently, the attitude was one of complete indifference on the the part of the gals. But he's saying that very, very shortly. All your pleasant fields and all your fruitful vines, the things that you took pride in, um, are going to be gone. And um, it can be applied in our days. Prior to the tribulation period, women will become so insensible that they will not recognize the danger that is coming. It's quite interesting that there will be uh, women who are living in pleasure in that day to such extent they will have no sense of coming judgment. And this is, this is what Peter talks about. Peter talks about judgment in the past, and it talks about people being willfully ignorant. And they choose to forget that God really did judge the world. And only eight people were saved. And so what we see is a whole change in the family structure in my lifetime. And uh, we've seen um, a lot of, uh, of uh, change in the family structure as a result. A lot of talk about right now about changing our government and America is going to be great again. And um, with all the talk that's going on there, it, it can make for a good speech. And, um, but I have very little confidence in anybody who's going to come into power only because I see that the stage is set for perilous times coming, the beginning of sorrows, and I don't think it's going to matter one way or the other because the foundation of our country is not the government, it's it's the family. And if you can undermine the family, then you've undermined everything else. So the strength of a country is really the family, not the government. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? And the family is under full-on attack. So it's what... Again, it's getting back to um, 
parents rearing their children, and more and more people, as Common Core is making its inroads, more and more people are making that tough decision of going the extra mile, raising their kids at home, and um, it's just the way that it is. And as we enter more into that period of time, we find here that Isaiah, in a couple of verses, just singles out the gals, and their complete uh, apathy, mediocrity, their complacency. And uh, they don't realize, in Isaiah's time, as he's talking to the northern ten tribes, um, this attitude, you're going <laughs> to get shaken up real quick. And, um, you know, I, I go online and I, I, I run through my news stories in the morning. There's usually about 40 of them that I click on. And I just try to find out in, in about five minutes what's happening in the world. And half of them usually have something to do with what dress a girl was wearing that particular day. And I, I say, who really cares? But it's half of what... The news story is about, you can't hardly find anything what's going on with um, events in Syria. I mean, real news that's out there. So from verses 9 through 14, we have um, a local prophecy that's about to come true with Assyria coming down and taking the ten northern tribes into captivity. And the complacency of the gals is going to be a real wake-up call. Now, in verses um, 15 through the end, we have the promise of the Spirit coming. And we have this until. So we have a natural break here. Until the Spirit is poured, poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful vine. So we've gone from desolation, but then the Spirit's going to get poured out, And when the Spirit is poured out again, then the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Do you see the switch? And now we're talking future tense again. And the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and the righteous remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And my people will dwell in perfect habitation, in secure dwellings, in quiet resting places. Uh, Though hail comes down on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation, and blessed are you who sow besides all waters, who uh, send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkeys. Well, these verses here, 15, is the third division of this chapter, and it is future tense, that someday the Spirit is going to be poured out upon Israel. Now let's do a little sidetrack here. Let's go to Acts 2 and then I'll backtrack. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. There's a prophecy, Joel's prophecy, that in the last days God will pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. Now we have here in Acts 2 the beginning of the church. And um, Jesus told his disciples, don't do anything, don't go anywhere. I want you to sit tight until you're empowered. And when he left, he says, it's expedient that I, I leave, because if I don't leave, then I won't be able to send back the comforter. He said it was absolutely necessary that he go. He had invested himself personally into 12 men for three years. And then he charged them, 
uh, to go and take the gospel, preach it into all the world. But he says, don't move until first you've received the power from on high. And he spoke about it in John 14, where he, he talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says he's with you now, but he's going to be in you. And so while Jesus was there, the Holy Spirit was with them. But when Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit was in them. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, um, it was early in the morning. There was people from all over the world. They began to speak in these languages from, as you look at the different countries, it says from the, the Medes and Mesopotamia, Asia, Egypt, Rome, they were from all over the place. And they began to, to speak in these different languages, and they were praising God, and they were amazed, uh, but others mocked, saying that they were full of, that they were full of wine. And uh, it was Peter who got up, and he says, uh, uh, let this be known, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But he says this, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and he points back to a prophecy. Now we just read, Isaiah said that the time's coming during the millennium, and he's clearly talking about the millennium, that the spirit will be poured out. But here, Peter points to it, where he quotes Joel in verse uh, 17, and it will come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You could make the argument that the last days began at Pentecost, God's final cycle. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And on my maidservants and on my uh, men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heavens above. Now clearly, beginning with 19, we're in the tribulation. And signs in the earth beneath, the blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness and moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. So we're talking about the tribulation period here. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, beginning here... um, Peter is pointing to a partial fulfillment of the Spirit being poured out. But in context, what it really is, is the millennial period of time and events that will precede the millennium, which is the tribulation. All right, well, this is one place. It is not yet completely fulfilled. But let's go back to the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 39. I'm going to have you turn there. And let me just walk us through 35, 36, 37, 38, 39 real quick. 35, 36, and 37 basically are saying one thing. And that is in the last days, in the latter times, God will bring the people that have been scattered all over the world, he will bring them back into the land of Israel. Probably the best example of it is the, the Valley of Dry Bones that were dead. And, um, you know, the Lord tells Ezekiel to speak to them and prophesy. And they start coming together and they have 
their bones join together, the sinew comes on them, and they stand up as a, a complete nation. And he says, this is the whole house of Israel. I brought them back, and they're alive again. And they're back in land. Well, that's fulfilled. 37 is a fulfilled prophecy as of May 14th, 1948. Now, 38 has not yet happened, but the stage is certainly set for it right now in the Middle East. And um, with 38, we have, once again, the reoccurring verse in the book of Ezekiel 54 times. There's this phrase that says, and then they will know that I am the Lord. But I think the most prominent time that is mentioned is after the Lord directly gets involved and the last verse of chapter 38 says, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. When he does what? When he directly intervenes just like he did in Egypt where there was no doubt about it that there's a God in Israel that's protecting them. God himself fights for Israel. Now that's the last verse of chapter 38. Chapter 39 is a chapter just on the cleanup, and it's going to take seven months for this cleanup to take place. But after the cleanup, when you read the very last verse of chapter 39, now the Ezekiel 38 war is over, and it says in verse the last verse, 29, I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord. So here's another place where the Spirit is going to be poured out. Now I believe after the scenario, exactly how Ezekiel 38 unfolds, I don't think anybody can be dogmatic. I think the rapture could occur before, during, or immediately after. But I I believe it has to be after, because right now the Spirit is, remember what he said in John 14, the Spirit is with you, but he's going to be in you. Well, that's what happened at Pentecost. Now anybody who is a born-again Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. 1 Corinthians 3 says, don't you realize that you're the temple of the living God and God himself dwells in you? But in 2 Thessalonians 2, we see that restraining force being removed. But God always leaves a witness. So if the church is taken out, and um, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is taken out. But now in 30, this verse here, we find that the Spirit is now on Israel. Well, how so? Well, it's going to start with two witnesses. I believe Moses and Elijah. Revelation 7, 144,000 born-again Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And they will be supernaturally protected And uh, they will be witnesses during that period of time. I'll I'll follow through more on that thought on Sunday morning when we get into some of the woes as we find the Lord, when that witness is removed, God still chooses, I can't give away too much here, otherwise I'm just not going to give it to you. That's all there's to it. (laughs) I'm going to have to wait. But this is another case here where the Spirit is poured out. Well, this is a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And we find in chapter 32 this promise, until the Spirit is poured out upon on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. So we, 
don't see that yet. Israel is back in the land, but they're basically there in unbelief. They're very, very secular. Um, Tel Aviv is uh, um, an ungodly city. What could I say? Just call it, call it what it is. Very ungodly city. All right, that's chapter 32. And as we get into chapter 33, we have the final woe is pronounced on all who spoil God's people and the land. So my subtitle here is Woe to the Spoiler of Jerusalem, subtitle Assyria. And so what we have in view here, this chapter in particular, pronounces a judgment upon those who seek to destroy God's people and lay waste his land. It refers to the Assyrians in the immediate preview, but extends to the final enemy of the last days. This chapter, you can call it geocentric. Geocentric is an adjective, meaning having a representing the earth as the center. So we say this chapter is geocentric. The land is the thing of primary importance. So as we dive in, um, this first verse here, is a reference to the spoiler. I'll come back, let's read it, and we'll come back and comment on it. He says, Woe to you who plunders, uh, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, uh, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered, and when you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. This first verse, the spoiler here, is, his name is Sennacherib, who does come against Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. Now, when we come back next week, we're going to be in those chapters, 36 and 37, uh, when Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, is going to come against um, Hezekiah in, in Jerusalem. Um, but it's not limited just to the Assyrians um, because it could have a, a, another effect that has another one to do with the Antichrist that is yet future as, as sort of like a, a prototype, much like Antioch Epiphanes uh, during the time of the Maccabees, who was a type, there's different types of, of the Antichrist throughout the scriptures. But in this first verse here, we have woe. Now, this is the last of the six woes from chapters 28 through 35. Or is it 32? I think it's 32 through 35 we have these six woes. And this one here, woe to you, is the last of the sixth. And um, it is primarily, the spoiler here would be, again, the guy's name is Sennacherib. And um, basically the idea is you're going to reap what you sowed. You're going to come in, but the Lord is going to also deal with them in one night. And so uh, this is also a picture of the final days of the consummation after God has brought together again the restored Roman Empire and the Antichrist. So we have foreshadows, and you want to be sensitive to the foreshadows that we have in the scriptures. I could give a lot of examples. Uh, One that just comes to mind is um, 
You know, Elijah telling Ahab, look, it's not going to rain until I say so. And um, it didn't rain for three and a half years. Uh, Jesus talks about it. James tells us it's three and a half years, to be exact. And he says, look, Isaiah was just an ordinary Joe. But when he prayed, it didn't rain for the space of three and a half years. And I think that's an interesting number. Now, it foreshadowed something. It actually happened in the Old Testament. And the day that he had it out with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, well, after that happened, that's the day it rained again. And it was a great storm, but it had not rained for three and a half years. So now when we get to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, and we're introduced to Elijah again, again, the last verse of the Old Testament says, I will send you Elijah before that great great and terrible day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children towards the father. End of Old Testament. Well, then they pop up again in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's Jesus glorified before his disciples, the three of them, Peter, James, and John. But there's Moses and there's Elijah. And uh, Peter gets all sidetracked. Um, Peter is never at a loss for words to say, even when he doesn't have anything to say. (laughs) And all he could get out is, oh, Lord, it's good that we're here. We should probably make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the heavenly father interrupted him from heaven, basically said, shut up, Pete. (laughs) This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Well, what was that all about? And so the whole conversation going down the mountain was, what just happened up there? And he says, well, Elijah has come, but he is coming. Well, what do you mean? And he explained about John the Baptist having the spirit of Elijah on him. Again, a double prophecy. So he said, Elijah has come, but his future tense still coming. So the Old Testament definitely tells us, the last verse, that Elijah is one of the two witnesses. And a staff meeting on uh, this high place, wherever it is in Israel. I have my own convictions of where it is. And then have them showing up for a three and a half year period of time in the book of Revelation. And one of the judgments is no rain for three and a half years. Now, you read that at face value, you go, that's crazy. But it happened before with the same guy. And so as we put connected dots through the scriptures, we see it's consistent. And... Um, it should give you confidence to say, I can take the book of Revelation literally. And yet most mainline Protestant, Roman Catholics, they do not take it literally. They spiritualize it. They say it's good against evil. And the fact of the matter is they don't have a clue. And um, yet the Lord clearly says, don't mess with this book. That's the last thing the book of Revelation says. Don't add to it. Don't add don't add, in, don't add anything to it and don't take anything away from it. Amen? And that's how, that's how the Bible ends, without warning. So I think it's a very important book, but as we make our way through, it gives us confidence not to roll our eyes and say, you've got to be kidding me. It's not going to rain for three and a half years? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. All right, let's go back to our chapter 33. The spoiler here, this, this is a double picture of uh, the Lord dealing uh, with uh, the king of Assyria. We'll get to that next week. 
but it also can deal with the bigger picture of God dealing with the Roman Empire, the world government that's coming, but also with the Antichrist. Now, 2 through 19 is sort of back and forth from the tribulation to the kingdom age. And I'm just going to read for a while. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. And we're waiting tonight, Lord. Be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee and When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar and the running to and fro of locusts. He shall run upon them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. All right, all of a sudden, we're in uh, the kingdom age. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the Stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The wayfaring man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. And the earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and, and shriveled. Asherin is like a wilderness, and Bashan and Carmel shake on their, on their fruits. And so again, we're back and forth of the, the trib period of time and, and the, also the millennial reign. Verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord, and now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff, and you shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you, and the people shall be like the burning of lime. Like thorns cut up, they will be burned in the fire. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, fearful. Thus has seized the hypocrites, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire. Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burning? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, and he who despises, disperses the grain of oppression, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. In other words, those that hate evil and are wanting and desiring righteousness, that's who's going to dwell with him. Uh, His place of defense will be a fortress of rocks, and bread will be given him, and his water will be sure. And I love verse 17. I have a special marking on it for the millennium. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty, and they shall see the land that is very far off. Wouldn't that be a great place just to close it up and go home? (laughs) Your eyes will see the king and his beauty and what the Lord is going to look like. You're going to see him someday. Your eyes are going to behold him. Um, It's one of mind-blowing verse. Uh, your, Your heart will meditate on tenor. Where is the scribe? Where is he who waits? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce person a person of obscure speech beyond perception, or a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. 
So in these verses, uh, 2 through 19, back and forth, talking about um, who is going to be upright, he's going to be taken care of, and the best part of it, he's actually going to see the Lord face to face. Now, in verses 20 and 21, um, let's just take those two verses. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast, and your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken, but there the majestic Lord will be for us a place of a broad river and streams in which no galley with oars will sail nor majestic ships pass by. Now, it's interesting, and this has caused some commentators to speculate the idea of uh, what's going to happen to Jerusalem during the millennial reign because we have verses here um, talking about streams, and rivers, and galleys, and oars with sails, and ships passing by. And it's caused people to look at Zechariah chapter 14 in a couple different lights. So what I'm about to propose to you, I'm not dogmatic about, but it gets me thinking. Because when the Lord does come back, Zechariah chapter 14, the first four verses says when the Lord returns, he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives, same place he left from, and the, the, the city will be divided, and there will be a great earthquake. And um, we have then the temple being restored, and we have waters coming down from the temple that go to the Dead Sea, and heal the Dead Sea. It says, and Gedi will be a place for spreading their nets. And Gedi's in the news, by the way, today. Uh, because <clears throat> it was this morning, Judy and I were talking about it. She, there's a great big storm hitting Israel big time right now. And um, there's such a drop-off, 1,300 feet uh, from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea. And it's all wilderness. So when it rains and they have flash flooding, it can do a lot of damage down there. Well, all the roads are closed off from En Gedi south. And uh, even though they've done a lot of work with creating these huge uh, uh, wadis, which are wide areas, to collect the water so it doesn't wipe out the roads, didn't work with this one because it was heavy storms all the way from Mount Hermon. They got a lot of snow. 1.5 meters of water added to the Sea of Galilee just because of this one major storm that's hitting all of Israel right now. Sort of like the whammy that we just missed. <laughs> they got our, my friends in Michigan, and they got a foot of snow tonight and 40-mile-an-hour winds, so we dodged a bullet on that one. But there's a, um, a major storm that's going on there, and I'm getting sidetracked, and I better not get too sidetracked or I'll forget why I went there. I know why I went there, because the waters that go down to En Gedi, there's also waters that go down to the Mediterranean. Now, there are those commentators who believe that 
Jerusalem will become a port city instead of Tel Aviv. And the damage that's done, and the, 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 it says rivers and streams in verse 21, that this actually goes to, because Jerusalem is elevated, and that it would be a port city where they actually have sails and ships passing by. And again, it's a, a thought that's put out there because of Zechariah chapter 14 and uh, Jerusalem being raised up, but still it clearly says that the waters go to the Mediterranean and to the Dead Sea. And some speculate because of this scripture right here that there's more to it that it actually becomes a port. Well, I guess we'll see someday, huh? So, I'm, again, I'm not dogmatic about that at all, but I find it interesting. Let's finish out the chapter. 22 through 24, the Prince of Peace will then bring peace on the earth. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. You tack, your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey, and the inhabitants will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. Interesting verse. But here these last verses clearly are millennial scriptures. Uh, The Lord will be Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and he will reign over the entire planet for the next thousand years. Brings us to chapter 34. Now, in chapter 34, really the whole chapter is the final world clash, and it's the battle of Armageddon. This chapter brings to an end the section which in the outline we have the kingdom in progress, thrones being established on earth. Judgment has been the theme all the way through this section. We have looked at six woes and followed a progression in this matter of prophecy. So now the six woes are over in this section. And when we get to uh, 34, really the, what we have in view here is this battle, woe to the nations. Come near you nations to hear and heed you people and let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. All right. Several times I've given you um, at least 12 or 13 different names for the tribulation. Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, Jesus said a time that has never been. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. He called it the tribulation. But it's also called the indignation. And when we were in Isaiah chapter 26, remember? It said, come my people, hide yourself for a moment uh, until the indignation is passed. Hide for just a little while. For the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth. And here we have for the indignation. Here's another place, another word for the tribulation. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. Now, we're not just talking about Assyria, not just talking about Babylon. We're not just talking about Russia and and Iran or the Ezekiel 38 war. 
We're talking about the nations of the world coming to fight against the Lord. And again, I want to show you, just just quickly turn to, to Psalm 2, how much the Old Testament talks about this particular event. You can't get past the first psalm, which is divided in two with six verses, the godly man and the ungodly man. First three verses, the godly man. Second four, three verses, the ungodly man. And then in Psalm 2, it's about the battle of Armageddon. And uh, that's, again, prophetic. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed, that would be us, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and let us cast away their cords from us. And that's their attitude. But he who sits in heaven will laugh, the Lord will hold them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So even there's many places, of course, Daniel uh, talks about it. Uh, But here in chapter 34, again, verse 2, another name for the tribulation is the indignation against all nations. And his fury against all their armies, he has utterly destroyed them. He's talking to them as if it's already happened, past tense. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain will be thrown out and their stench will rise from their corpse and all the mountains will be melted with their blood. Pretty graphic. And all the host of heaven will be dissolved. Now the host of heaven is a reference to Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, where it says Michael and his angel fought against the devil and his angel. And... uh, The devil and his angels did not prevail, and they were cast to the earth. So we have the host of heaven being judged, and and the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. This is even farther on into um, that period of time where Peter talked about um, the earth being dissolved. And here's a reference to it being rolled up like a scroll. After the thousand years, there's a new heaven and there's a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth are no more. And he just rolls it up like a, a scroll. And, uh, and the host of will have fallen down as the leaves fall from the vine and as the fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword will be bathed in heaven Indeed, it will come down on Edom. Now, Edom, remember, uh, the remnant is in Petra, Selah, which is Edom, which is modern-day Jordan today. And here we have it. uh, That was Isaiah chapter 16. But here it's repeated again that the Lord is coming with a bathed sword. He comes down on Edom, and on my people of my curse for judgment, The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It will make overflowing with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats and with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. Well, Basra, again, Isaiah 63. Who is this who rides from Basra? And again, it's a picture of the Lord coming from, delivering the remnant 
that are there, and uh, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Uh, The wild oxen will come down with them, and young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood. Uh, In in Revelation it says, um, in other places, that the, the blood in some places will come up to a horse's bridle. That's the devastation of this. And their dust saturated with fatness, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Now, personal application here. And it gets into a faith issue of um, fighting your own battles. Or the Bible says, vengeance is mine. Why don't you let me take care of it, son or daughter? And um, sometimes that's tough. Sometimes uh, maybe you've been wronged and you want to make things right and you have the power to do so in your own in your own might. And um, the Lord says, vengeance is mine, why don't you let me take care of it? Well, guess what's required in order for that to happen? Faith. <laughs> you gotta believe that the Lord is the avenger and he will avenge. Maybe not in the time frame that you want, but it's a real test of your faith um, when you're put in that situation. Gee, I wonder what he's gonna do or I wonder what she's gonna do and trust the Lord to it, take matters into his own hands. And so um, here, uh, the Lord comes and he redeems the remnant in the day of his vengeance. Um, Let's pick it up. Uh, For the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. None of these guys are getting away with anything. And the kings of the earth think they're going to establish their kingdom uh, but the Lord's got plans of his own, doesn't he? To set up his throne, and nothing, nothing can change that. Uh, verse 9, its streams will be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. And, and the land will become like burning pitch. That's interesting. Pitch, what is pitch? Tar. Or unrefined oil. And isn't it interesting that one of the largest oil discoveries of all times was just discovered on the Golan Heights in Israel? 350 meters thick, when an average find is anywhere between 30 and 40, 10 times larger. And they say it's really good stuff. Now, I don't know the difference between really good stuff and really bad stuff, but they say this is primo cream petroleum. But I find it interesting here that there's pitch that's mentioned, and uh, he, its streams will be turned into pitch and its dust to brimstone. Its land will become burning pitch. It will not be quenched day or night. Its smoke shall ascend forever. So clearly what we have in view here is um, the punishment of the lake of fire because of the word forever. From generation to generation, it, it will lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Uh, but the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven will dwell in it. And he will stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there. And all its princes shall be nothing. And um, what we have uh, in Chapter 34 in these verses is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Nothing can stop it. If you're taking notes, you might just want to jot down 
Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Concerning what we're reading right here, the Lord says, don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So everything that Jesus came to do was to fulfill what the Old Testament spoke about him. But then he says this, for verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. All right, so now we're all, all the way out to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. That's when there's a new heaven and a new earth. So all the way out to that time, till heaven and earth pass away, um, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until it is fulfilled. So here the Lord is saying, this is a locked-in deal. The things that we're reading here, there's no power that can change it. It has to happen. And the Lord makes that very, very clear. To the jot and the tittle, we'd say to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. That's how sure this book book is. I think, gang, I think it's one of the, the greatest witnessing resources that we have. And um, go up to some person and say, um, how'd you like to know what's gonna happen before it happens? And um, what if I could tell you about things that are going to be with 100% certainty and not be wrong? Are you interested? The average person would actually bite on that one, don't you think? It would get, it would get my attention. How about if I tell you something that's never happened before and it's gonna happen? Just exactly as I tell you it's gonna happen. That's all the Lord is saying here. That nothing is going to not happen to a jot or a tittle. That's the smallest part of the Old Testament. What we're reading here in Isaiah is all future tense. And basically, the Lord is putting his stamp on it and says that nothing's going to change it. This is a done deal. I'm going to set up my kingdom. But what is going over and over again is this terrible period of time called the tribulation. And then he's going to roll all things up like a scroll. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The Lord said so in Matthew 5.18. But until that happens, all this has to be fulfilled. It's past tense as far as the Lord is concerned. For you and I sitting here tonight, it's future context. But that's why in 1 Thessalonians 5, it tells us that he wants us to know these things. He says, gang, you're children of the light. You're children of the day. I don't want these things to overtake you like a thief. Oh, they're gonna take the world over by surprise but don't let it surprise you. I mean, we should be interested in what's going on in Israel right now. Somebody want to say amen? We should be on a cutting edge, and we should be able to say, I can tell you what's coming down. I don't have all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle put together, but I can tell you the final act and what's exactly going to happen. And um, the stage is set for possibly Psalm 83 and certainly Ezekiel 38. It's on the doorstep. It's like that Johnny Cash song, Matthew 24 is knocking at the door. <laughs> it's a great song. All right, let's finish off this chapter. Um, verse 13, and thorns shall come up in its, in its places, and nettles and brambles in its fortress. It'll be a habitation of jackals, a courtyard for orchards. The wild beasts of the desert also shall meet with the jackals and the wild goats shall bleat to its companion. Also the night creatures shall rest there 
and find for herself a place of rest. Then the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow. And there also shall be hawks be gathered, every one with her mate. Search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail. Not one of them shall lack her mate. For my mouth has commanded it, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they will dwell in it. Chapter 24, primarily, at an overview, is basically the indignation. We finish this section with, with a short chapter that ends not with the, the tribulation, but with the coming kingdom. My subtitle is here, the Behold the Coming Kingdom. As we come to this chapter, we can thank God that the war of Armageddon is not the end of all things. Chapter 35 is a poetic gem. There is a high sense of poetic justice in this chapter, which concludes the section on judgment. So all the way from chapter 1 to this chapter here, it's been God dealing with judgment. He's talking to Israel and Judah about the immediate threat with Assyria for the ten northern tribes, but dovetailing it in with the tribulation that's coming. And we're coming now to the end of all that, and he's sort of sending us home on a high note with um, uh, sort of the calm in this chapter is a contrast to the storms of the judgment of the previous chapter. We can say with the writer of the Song of Solomon that winter is past and the flowers appear on the earth. There is a beautiful light at the end of the tunnel. But a dark tunnel we have to go through. Well, we don't, but the world is going to. So let's read it. It's only 10 verses long. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert will rejoice and blossom as the rose. One of our trips to Israel, we went to a Christian kibbutz. And their whole kibbutz, all they did is raise roses. That's what they were for. And when we went to visit them, every girl got a dozen red roses, freebies, just for visiting. The girls really liked that kibbutz. And... Um, It will blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. Mount Carmel is up by Haifa, and the valley of Sharon is there. And they shall see the glory of God and the excellency of our God. So strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful, Be strong, don't fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, and he will come, and he will save you. He's talking to his people, Israel. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Now as soon as you get to Jerusalem, it's like drawing a line. And you have from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean, green and lush. 
from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, nothing but barren wilderness and rocks, period. That's what you have. But in that day, there will be streams um, in, in the desert. And verse eight, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks on the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. In other places we read, the lion lays down with the lamb. And kids um, play around this, uh, the viper's den, and they're really not concerned about it. Look at mommy, what I brought home today. Uh, this cobra, I call him Charlie, and we're good friends, and he's my buddy. So that fear is, is taken away. You're wondering where I got that in the Bible. I didn't, I made it up. No lines. And verse 10, and the ransom of the Lord shall, shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And we have basically the end of a major division of the three divisions of the book of Isaiah, one through 35, dealing with these woe judgments. But um, now we're at a a change where chapter 36 talks about King Hezekiah. And it's just gonna be that section where we're shifting gears. So we've, we've, we've reached a marker tonight, and I can't think of a better, you know, we, we sing that song, Go Out With Joy and Be La Da Da Da. That's sort of what this is saying. You shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So let's stand and uh, thank the Lord for telling us this much about what is going to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And bringing us, Lord, as we study your word again, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, Thank you that that you call us friends, and as friends, you said you will hide nothing from us, that if we will simply take the time to study your word, there isn't anything you won't lay out, telling us what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and even when it's going to happen. Lord, we're humbled that you've opened our eyes. Lord, equip us and help us use the sword that we call the word of God. Help us take that sword out every once in a while and use that double-edged sword to let people know what's happening and asking them that if they're right with you and ready for that day when you come for your church. You've told us to watch. you told us to be ready. And so we take that to heart this evening, and we thank you once again for the Wednesday night Bible study. Lord, bless your people, and I pray that they do go out with joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.